Hey, now say now, you're tuned into the Wake Up and Win podcast, and I am your host, Devon Pouncey. I am here in the beautiful city of Portland, Oregon, and today we have a special guest joining us. He is a lecturing fellow at the Duke University. I know many of you know about Duke University, especially based on its basketball history. Um, he's also a writer as well as a co-host of the End of Sport podcast. Nathan Common Lamb, thank you so much for joining me here on the Wake Up and Win podcast. Glad we could connect. Devon, it's a pleasure. Uh, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty nice out here in Durham as well. Yeah, yeah, you're out there in Durham. It, it's pretty warm out here in Portland, oddly. Um, we don't get a lot of heat out here, but this week has been a little bit of a heat wave. We're in the 90s this week, which is, like I said, a bit excessive for Oregon weather. We're known for the the rain and the overcast weather and, and being a little chilly over here. So um, you might be doing a little bit better than me in Durham. But then again, maybe you aren't. <laughs> you know what? It's 70 degrees right now in Durham, if you can believe that, uh, which is really astounding. But uh, normally, normally it's hot as hell here. Though. It's, it's really unbearable. I'm a Canadian. Um, so no, the heat and I find the heat down here in the south fairly unbearable, but I enjoy the winters. So that's yeah, I out. see it. I, I see the Canadian in you. You're wearing it right on top of your head. You got the Montreal Expos hat going for us. So I, I'm definitely digging that. I'm digging that. Um, we got a lot to get into today. Obviously, you know, a hot topic of conversation has been name, image, and likeness. And interestingly enough, we had sort of a conversation slash debate on last week's episode. And I said, you know what? We got Nathan Kalman Lamb joining us on this week's episode, and he'll be able to clear up all things name, image, and likeness for us. Um, but essentially, we all know what a historic time the pandemic was in regards to the social reckoning that the world went through, essentially. Um, you think of you know the police brutality stuff that was going on. Um, obviously, a lot of uncomfortable conversations going on in the workplace. You even look at that of name, image, and likeness, and you think about, um, you know, state officials, you know, Gavin Newsom in California, for example, signing bills that would allow athletes to get paid off of their name, image, and likeness. And then you think about the NCAA tournament here at University of Oregon. You had Sedona Prince, who had the viral TikTok moment that sort of showed the inequities of how women's basketball players were treated at the tournament in comparison to men. You also had the not NCAA property movement um, during that time as well, that essentially was just letting it be known that they weren't NCAA property. So now you fast forward to about a month ago and the NCAA decides, you know what, players and athletes can get paid for their name, image, and likeness. Many people sort of saw this as this huge historic moment. Um, and then some people sort of look at it from the lens of this is just sort of a basic thing that should have been the case a long time ago. For you in particular, Nathan, where do you stand on this unique period in time based on the NCAA's history and things that they wouldn't allow in the past in comparison to now where we're starting to see a little bit more opportunities for athletes to ultimately be compensated? Sure. Um, and of course, there's a lot for us to get into here and, and, and we can kind of dig deeper. But just as a sort of a, more of a surface level take, uh, let me just say, I mean, I think anyone operating in good faith has to acknowledge that college athletes, like any other human beings living and residing in the United States of America, 
deserve to have the right to be compensated for their name, image, and likeness, right? It's an absolute absurdity. Um, it's essentially a, almost a form of like a human rights violation for that to have been denied to them historically. So yeah. do I think that this is a, be- a positive change? Of course. Um, and I think anyone making any kind of claims to the contrary has nothing but the worst interests of college athletes in mind and has some kind of ulterior motive for doing so. Okay. So let's make that the starting point. I'm going to say a lot of things today that are going to sound pretty critical of maybe name, image, and likeness, or like a sort of celebration of the name, image, and likeness moment. But I want to start by saying, of course, I feel like athletes deserve to have these rights. Okay. The issue is not that we went from no rights to the rights. The issue is how much we celebrate name, image, and likeness rights and where the conversation kind of pivots to from here okay so let's just start with that piece maybe absolutely um well well starting with that piece in particular because we had a conversation here last week where again i'm grateful that these athletes have the basic opportunity to be able to get compensated off their name image and likeness but there's also sort of a feel that this was sort of a cop-out in regards to the ncaa who makes billions of dollars worth of revenue off of these athletes and aren't really digging into their own pockets and affecting their own bottom line by way of creating a structure that would pay these NCAA athletes. Where do you stand on that? Because for me, it just still sort of feels like the NCAA found a loophole in an attempt to right its wrongs and and try to catch up with history as you're seeing, you know, you're seeing the NBA G League that are paying players. You're seeing players get internships with New Balance and sneaker companies and all of these ways, You the, the Ball family, we have to discuss LeVar Ball and what he did with LaMelo, sending him overseas, so on and so forth. What are your thoughts on the NCAA essentially trying to right their wrongs by allowing players to get paid off their name, image, and likeness? Yeah, great point. And that's a great starting point. So the first thing is, um, and I think, you know, this really gets lost in most of the conversation. Although um, the NCAA has been fighting this very strenuously, right, for decades um, and, and clinging to this sort of principle of amateurism, the only real way I can see that kind of logically adding up is they worry about this sort of slippery slope dimension of this, i.e. if there is any form of compensation, if we compromise this principle of amateurism to any extent, then we run the risk of people suddenly asking more questions about why athletes aren't actually receiving the full measure of compensation they deserve, i.e. why aren't they receiving a share of the actual revenue that they are producing for universities, right? Right. Um, But let me say this. I think that although that has been the strategy of the NCAA, I don't view the developments that we see now as some kind of major loss for the organization. And here's the reason why. Somebody else is paying the players now. I mean, imagine running a business and your labor force is generating revenue for you. In this case, by producing a commodity spectacle. And then you get to go and ask the car wash down the street to pay your workers you still get to sell the commodity spectacle. You still get to reap all of the financial benefits of that sale. And someone else is paying your labor force. Guess what? Labor costs are the highest costs any businesses have to bear. So if someone else is bearing those costs for you, you got a pretty sweet deal. And that's what we're looking at here, right? In the context of college sport. Now, a couple other things. One, we talk about the NCAA a lot, but let's be crystal clear here. The NCAA, again, is just a cover, essentially, for universities. 
Okay. Mm. It is the universities themselves that are the primary beneficiaries of all this. The NCAA actually has a relatively shoestring budget in the grand scheme of things, which is why March Madness had to happen this year. Because if March Madness had not happened this year, the NCAA was on the verge of bankruptcy. Okay. That just shows you how tight their margins are. Right. Excuse me. When it comes to the universities themselves, though, that's a different story, right? These television contracts, et cetera, for football, which is the primary revenue producer, right? Are they're going to the universities. In 2018, 2019, I like to talk a lot about the Power Five because we're talking about the big business of college yeah, sports. The absolutely. Power Five is where the money mostly is. Right. $8.3 billion of revenue, okay, came into the Power Five schools in 2018, 2019, which is one of the last years we have the figures for right now, okay? So that just tells you the kind of magnitude of business. That money is not mostly going to the NCAA. That money is mostly going to universities. The universities like to call themselves nonprofits, right? But at the end of the day, somebody is getting paid, right? The president is getting paid. The athletic director is getting paid. The coaches are getting paid. These There's actually a whole bureaucracy, a whole fleet of athletic department employees who would not exist if they didn't have cash to pay them with, right? right. So there are a lot of people who are getting paid based on the labor of what I like to call campus athletic workers, college athletes. And so going back, circling back to the question you asked me initially, I completely accept and agree with the premise that if we really want to rectify the issue of exploitation in college sports, we must see universities paying athletes as employees. There's no middle ground there for me. However, what NIL has accomplished for the universities and for the NCAA is that it has given them the sort of capacity to say, look, Okay, maybe we were being a bit unfair with this whole amateurism thing. Now players are being paid, so the problem is done. The problem is put to rest, solved, end of the story, right? Yeah, Which is, yeah. then that it allows this entire $8.3 billion system to keep on rolling. Right, right. What, what are your thoughts from the landscape of like administration? You know, you mentioned, you know, the president of the school, the athletics director and everybody that gets paid essentially off the back of and the production of the athletes and what it is that they produce on the field, on the court, on the track, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you, as somebody who obviously, you know, works at, at Duke University, myself, I commentate these college ball games. And for me, I don't, I don't know if I was perceiving this wrong, and maybe you can kind of help me navigate through this here, but I felt like a lot of job descriptions changed by default during the pandemic because people had to adjust in ways that they never could have expected. And then you add on the, the name, image, and likeness factor where essentially it's still going to be a little bit of trial and error because this is such a new thing, which is unfortunate that it's so new, but it's still such a new thing. How do you think this affects administration at these universities, especially when you speak to the landscape of the universities are the one making all of this money? Um, do you think the NCAA should be a little bit more hands on in this process or because of the fact that these universities are making more money, these administrators should essentially up their game a little bit and deal with whatever comes with name, image and likeness, even though we don't fully know what that is at this point? Sure. Okay. Yeah, there's a lot to that. I mean, the, the first thing is, um, do I have time for athletic department officials, uh, any university administrators, coaches grousing about the 
fact that, you know, different transfer rules or different NIL rules or the fact that there's now going to be additional COVID eligibility. You know, Dabo Swinney was complaining about that just today, about the yeah. fact that he really wishes that only five players a year would get their call COVID eligibility because that would make it a lot easier for him to manage the roster moving forward. I mean, <laughs> man who literally, when he had yeah. 23 players at practice test positive with COVID, he did not shut practice down. And within weeks, he had 37 players with COVID, right? But this guy doesn't yeah. even think those guys deserve additional year. They're not getting paid. I mean, they don't even deserve an additional year to play because it's inconvenient to him. And he always wants to have the capacity to cut the players who are less productive and keeps the, keep the ones who are more productive, right? And I just use that as an example right. of the fact that if you are being paid millions of dollars, which is the case for university presidents, which is the case for the highest paid coaches. And otherwise, if you're earning, you know, very high six figure salaries and your workers are not receiving any compensation. Um, you got nothing to complain about. Uh, so that's, that's the starting point for me. I think we have to, you know, always take that into account. Now the, the, the trickier question you're asking, and I do not pretend to be an expert on the nuts and bolts of, you know, promotional labor, let's say, i.e. what, what NIL right. is, what that involves for an athletic department. I'm not an athletic department employee, and I don't know what goes into that. I can only kind of look at it as an outsider as well, although as you, as you have pointed out, you know, I work at one of these universities, and so, um, you know, I have some perspective on it. Right. Um, here's the thing. The issue historically has been that the NCAA treated itself as some kind of like legal body, essentially criminalizing all sorts of things like compensation for players within its own rules. So that people sometimes even think like it's against the law for players to be paid in college sports. It's not against the law. It's against NCAA rules. What the right. NCAA can do is say this player, this program is ineligible to participate. And because they have a monopoly in this particular <laughs> political economy, they have the capacity to do that. But it was never illegal for college athletes to be paid any amount of money, right? Um, so what I'm trying to say by bringing that up is, I mean, I have concerns always about um, the college sport bureaucracy, the NCAA, the universities imposing any kind of relatively arbitrary regulations on what right. people, on what their employees can earn, right? Like that, that for me is a big problem. The ideal world in this sense would be and, and I'm not like, you know, I should say that a lot of the people in the college sport reform kind of movement are, you know, free market types who think you know, just apply the principles of the free market to college sport in the same way that you would apply them to other facets of society. I don't disagree with that um, in that I don't think that we should be regulating and limiting college athletes, but I'm also not a particularly pro-capitalist, neoliberal person in my own worldview. So I'm going to come at it from a much more... Um, anti-capitalist perspective. Let me put it that way. Okay. So like okay. for me, the be all and end all is not like the free market, people earning as much money as possible. Like there's, there are complications to that, but nevertheless, at the end of the day, if the question is, and to me, this is the question. If the question is about workers, labor, and the amount of compensation that they receive for the work that they are doing, what we should have in any case in U S society in global societies, what we should have are the fewest regulations possible on the capacities of workers to earn. Okay. So the reason I'm saying that is I don't want to see the NCAA then putting up guardrails as they talk about it, right. To prevent yeah. athletes from earning more, more and more rules. The, the problem is not not having enough rules and a free for all, right. You can, these athletic departments have already hired a fleet of people whose job has been essentially compliance, literally a compliance, right. Right, right, well, right, right. If the issue now is figuring out how to navigate the legal dimensions of 
copyright, for instance, and things like that with respect to name, image, and likeness. So hire those people and make sure that when you're the athlete who works for your program is signing a deal with the car wash, that they're not going to get in trouble for it. Don't tell them they can't do it, right? Fill out the paperwork that allows them to do it. That's the kind of thing that needs to be happening. Most definitely. Most definitely. What are you looking forward to right now as we approach football season? You already kind of alluded to the power five dynamic in the NCAA. And now we know the NCAA's biggest cash cow essentially is football. Following up right after that is basketball. Uh, Makes sense that they're happening back to back. But um, when you just look at it from the landscape of where now in this moment, where name, image, and likeness is available to these athletes, and it's happening right as we approach college football season. Is there anything in particular that you're looking at in regards to maybe how this thing will play out or what should play out or just what you perceive should be the case as we enter the most pivotal part in regards to the NCAA being able to make the the most amount of money off of its biggest cash cow, which is college football? Well, let's think. Here's one thing we haven't done yet as much as I would like to, which is to think about some more of the downsides of NIL as the exclusive form of compensation for for campus athletic workers. Okay. Mm, Talk about it. Yeah. Here's one thing. What we are essentially asking these young people to do is a completely additional form of promotional labor on top of the already full-time occupations they have. They are already, the football players are already working 40 hours a week at football. They are already full-time students, but we're not telling them if you want to get paid at all for the 40 hours a week you are doing, you need to do this other job on the side. Now, you know this, Devon, hosting a podcast is a lot of work. It takes preparation, right? I mean, you could say now college athletes can host podcasts and have Patreon on them. Yeah, that's great, but it's actually not that easy to host a successful podcast. Not at all. If you want people to be paying you via Patreon, it better be good, which takes a huge amount of time, right? And the same goes for any other form. If you're merchandising, if you're branding yourself, I mean, I've seen, right? You see the tweets like X player, X quarterback has all these revenue streams now, right? And they list seven different things. But if you go down the list of seven things, those are seven things that require them to do a lot of work more work that they were doing already. Why are we asking people to do more work? Why are we asking them to hustle, right? So what we're actually doing is, yes, we're promoting a gig economy. I have real concerns about that. We're saying like, instead of having a a stable full-time job that compensates you for the very hard work you were doing, you actually have to have seven different jobs and that's okay. Right. And so naturalizing that particular kind of um, dynamic is something I'm really uncomfortable with, because suddenly instead of saying like sports are too commercialized, like there was a moment where we once were like, you know, having a a company's name on your jersey is kind of distasteful. Right. Because what it's doing is just promoting this sort of capitalist world in which it's all about brands and commodities. And like, can we just strip that away and like enjoy people playing sports, for instance? Well, now we have the exact opposite of that. where We're being required because it is the only revenue stream for the athlete. We are required to celebrate every endorsement, every deal with Barstool, right? Like this yeah. is a company I despise. Their messaging is deeply harmful to our world, but I'm supposed to embrace the fact now because the players are getting like some pocket change. I've literally seen um, Andy Wittry was reporting in his newsletter. Some of these NIL deals are for $3, Incredible. $3, right? Or $9. I mean, it's, it's, it's a joke, yeah, right? It's a joke. That's a joke. That's an absolute um, joke. Exactly. So 
these are this is only going to amp up as we get into the season, right? These conflicts for the players. The issue is not that I'm more like the coach is going to tell you that the issue is, Oh, is the player going to be spending enough time at practice? Are they going to be working hard enough on the game? Like I'm really worried their attention is going to be distracted. You know, I'm worried because these are human beings who are being pushed to the limit in order to, um, to, to get, something out of their labor. And, yeah. and this is where we have to connect these issues because like let's, you brought up football and I want to talk about football. Football is a inherently sacrificial enterprise. It literally requires the workers who were involved in the process to give up their brains, right? In order to do the work, you know, these players know it and it's an exceptionally difficult kind of tension and conflict they live as they go through it. They are hoping, most of the players you talk to, they are hoping to provide for themselves and their families. That's why they're doing it. And they know that they are doing it in a way that is taking a tremendous toll on them, that they are in fact making a sacrifice in order to do that. Can you imagine our universities with coaches making $8 million a pop? These universities, which are supposed to be institutions of higher education, that are supposed to be about nurturing young people, are sacrificing them instead on the football field and won't even pay them for their labor. Yeah, that's, right? that's, that's I mean, not good. <laughs> if you think about it that way, it's a really despicable thing. And the yeah. reason why the players are willing to do it, like the university would be like, well, it's a consensual arrangement. They know they're getting a scholarship and they've agreed to play football. No, they're doing it because they want to make the NFL. Yeah. And they know that when they make the NFL, they will Absolutely. actually get paid for it, right? And they can, then they can provide for their families. They can provide for themselves. And the payoff, the years that they have put into sacrificing their bodies will be worth it, you know? Yeah. And I have interviewed, because, you know, my, my colleague Derek Silva and I, we have a book we're working on about college sport. And we've interviewed some players. And some of the players, I've just been actually going through and transcribing some of those interviews. So I've been, they're really fresh in my mind. Right. And what are some of those players who have played in both college football and the NBA, and excuse me, college football and the NFL were telling me explicitly is the relief that they feel when they finally make it to the NFL and just see that first paycheck. The tremendous, yeah. and by the way, these guys, they think the NFL is sheer evil. It's not like yeah. they have some kind of perspective. They're, like, They're no the NFL, fun league. Right. They know the NFL is a business. They know the NFL yeah. is doing everything it can to extract as much value as it can for the, for, from their bodies. And it doesn't give a shit about what that does to them in the long run. And still, compared to college, it is a tremendous relief because they're finally getting the thing that they worked all these years for. So just to bring it all back, right? This is why you can't really celebrate NIL that much because that dynamic persists. These universities are still not providing lifetime health insurance to these players that they are sacrificing. The universities, in fact, are not even paying for the health insurance while the players are in college. That's on their family's dime. Um, Mm. It's just, it it boggles the mind when you really sit down and think about it. And what we haven't even talked about, and I'm happy to get into if you want to, but we don't have to. Come on with it. Come on with it. It's the educational side of it, right? Because I, and I, and I want to bring it up, not just because I, you know, I teach at a university, but the educational side matters because the compensation that these players have been promised from the universities is the education, right? Like we know right. that if we take them at their word, what they're yeah. saying is literally you give your labor in exchange for your labor. What you receive is the wage in the form of a scholarship, i.e. Right. you will be educated at these institutions, right? And we're supposed to feel really grateful for that because these are such fine institutions and know oh, they wouldn't yeah, accept yeah. you otherwise. And yeah, you yeah, yeah, yeah. certainly <laughs> would be subjected to a lifetime of debt if we didn't do this, right? Which is another right. question. And by the way, in Canada, this system wouldn't work because if there's more accessible higher education, you can't sell the lie that the education is actually worth the labor, 
right? So right. really what we should have is a system where everyone gets access to university and they don't have to give up their bodies for it. Right. Um, right. That's not the system we have. So yeah. then we ought to think about what actually happens for the athletes in the classroom. And again, the thing that the NCAA would make, what we would want you to think is, well, in some very egregious cases, there is academic corruption going on. So if you think about UNC, UNC was like the big, the big UNC paper class scandal, which may be less familiar. It's going, it's like a little bit more in the rearview mirror now. Um, it's a few years out, but what was happening for decades was that players were taking um, classes that weren't real classes. They were like directed reading type courses and it turned out they didn't have to do any work. And so, you know, the big scandal was that players were just playing the sport and they weren't really doing school. And of course, that's a scandal. But two things. One, the scandal there, I want to be really clear on this. The scandal is not that the players are cheating the system by not doing school. The scandal is that the school is cheating the players by not giving them the education that it promises them as compensation. Okay. Mm. And the other part of it, the other scandal here, or the, or the other sort of misconception is that's not the primary way in which academic kind of impri impropriety works in the context of college sport. In some cases, fine there's corruption. But in most cases, this is the real issue. Systematically, the players cannot receive the education that they're promised. And it's not because the players aren't good enough at school. It's because when you are working a 40 hour a week, full-time job that involves demolishing your body and brain, yeah, you can't show up in a classroom and learn properly. Yeah. That's the bottom line. Basic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you, you couldn't lay it out any simpler than that. Um, you being at Duke, how has that sort of affected and impacted your outlook on college sport as a whole? Obviously, you know, the historic Duke University, especially in terms of basketball, um, you know, we, we, we think about Coach K, we think about, you know, Durham and Chapel Hill and the rivalry there. And, and, and we obviously know that, that Duke is very renowned in, in regards to the sport of basketball in particular and beyond, but uh, as I mentioned, basketball, we know what it is. Um, has that had any impact or influence on the work that you're doing, the book that you're writing, the podcast that you're hosting, the articles that you write in The Guardian, so on and so forth? You're doing so much work, my friend. How has that impacted the work that you've been doing? That's a great question. And, and it has had a tremendous impact. So to, to back it up a little bit, I came to Duke from Canada. Right. Um, right. And some people who know me are familiar with that, but I did. That means I did my undergraduate education. I did my graduate work all in Toronto. Um, but that doesn't mean I wasn't familiar with the U.S. college sports system because I was like a kind of weird Canadian kid who was obsessed with U.S. college sports. My dad went to Clearly. the University of Windsor and he, you know, he just became a Michigan fan. And so I grew up like loving Michigan sports, basically, uh, ever since I was a tiny tot. I always loved sports as a kid. Um, and so you know, I was always watching from the outside. I was familiar with the dynamics. It wasn't like it was un Duke, for instance, or what, anything else was unfamiliar to me when I arrived, you know, I, but I had been doing, my work was not focused on college sport, particularly when I got to Duke, my work, I was actually like my, my first, um, single authored book was, which is called Game Misconduct, was about professional hockey primarily. Because if you're in mm -hmm. Canada and you want to talk to athletes, the kind of athletes you're going to find around that are easier to get access to, it's going to be hockey players, right? Yes. Um, 
But the thing for me is the dynamics across these professional sports or these what I call high performance spectator sports, they're very similar, um, especially the ones that require a kind of physical sacrifice. So, you know, I came to Duke with, first of all, my understanding of college sports. Second of all, you know, my my critique of a high performance spectator sport in general, right? And so the natural thing for me is to kind of to bring those things together because now I've had the amazing opportunity of sort of sitting right in the sort of center of the U.S. college sport world, right? Yeah. Um, that's like Duke is a classic case of a school. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it isn't, it isn't. It's not, and I'm going to get into that. It's a classic case in that the sport is taken, sport is taken tremendously seriously, right? It's a huge part right. of what's happening in the culture. Um, it's different because Duke is a private institution and it's as a consequence, a much smaller school than most of the power five big public universities. Right. Gotcha. Um, and what that means is for instance, like there are a few things that that means, but one thing is we actually have a way higher proportion of college athletes in our classes than you would find if you were like comparing it to Michigan, because mm. if Michigan has, I don't know, I'm just pulling it out of my head, but if Michigan has 50,000 students, let's say right. it has the same number of athletes that Duke does, but Duke yeah. has like 6,000 undergraduate students, yeah, right? gotcha, all gotcha. playing at that level. So we have a ton of opportunity and, and my classes are class. I teach um, a first year writing course that is a mandatory course all students have to take first year writing but my sections specifically are about sports and so gotcha. a lot of students at duke are really interested in taking them because they don't have another opportunity to talk about sport athletes don't have a lot of opportunities to talk about sport in the classroom so what's happened to me is at duke having had the opportunity to talk to so many athletes to sort of see the system from the inside um what i what I kind of came to learn is, and this is what, what has helped me develop my critique, especially at the educational side of the college gotcha. sports system. I believe that Duke is the best possible case scenario of how college sport works. I think that the students are given the best education that they can get within the college sport universe. I think that probably the coaches are like, especially if we're talking about football, as concerned about health and welfare as they are anywhere else in the system. I do not have athletics people breathing down my neck, telling me what kind of grades I should give to students. Okay. Yeah. Under the athletes. Yeah. So in that sense, right. Um, Duke has been instructive to me about, you know, how the system can look in its best form, but here's the point, even in its best iteration, the iteration I'm seeing at Duke, I consider the system to be fundamentally and irredeemably exploitative. And that is what is so instructive about Duke for me, because I say, when I'm looking at the students, it's not about paper classes. It's about the fact that they are taking the proper classes. They're trying their best. And even within that model, what happens? They are falling asleep in the classroom, not because they don't care, not because they're not trying, but because it's not possible. I teach at a university like Duke. And I'll tell yeah. you that if I had the responsibilities that they had, I would absolutely be falling asleep in the classroom. Yeah. The students that keep their eyes open are exceptional human beings who have yeah. like a capacity <laughs> But it's like, it's mind blowing. Really, yeah. that's the truth of it. And For what sure. also happens, there's a, a con, this is not a Duke thing. There's a concept with cross college sport, academic clustering. Players are also pushed to particular classes because those classes will be less, are perceived to be less strenuous, let, take less of a toll on their athletic work, right? So there's all of these ways in which um, athletes are denied the same experience that other students get. Well, at Duke, here's another example of that Duke. One of the big, 
uh, and I had to learn this and coming to Duke, one of the yeah. reasons why people come to Duke is not because like the classroom education is so much better than let's say UNC. I think UNC and Duke are great comparisons because yeah. I'm not criticizing UNC. UNC is a very prestigious academic institution, right? But it's a public school. Duke is a private school. Geographically, they're in such close proximity. Yeah. The students have taught me people come to Duke because they want to make connections. This is all about cultural and social capital that they can carry with them. They want to meet like the, whatever, the Facebook CEOs, like nephew or whatever. Right. I mean, I'm just pulling things, making things up, but like they want to meet the people who go to Duke, who are connected on wall street and Silicon Valley and everything else. And Duke facilitates that because they offer internships, right. They offer these summer programs. There's all kinds of things that they offer that like that, provide a form of value in the eyes of the students. So when they're paying $70,000 or some absolutely outrageous amount of tuition, they perceive themselves to be receiving something in exchange for that, right? Gotcha, yeah. The athletes don't get that stuff because the athletes are working on the football field during the summer when they would be having these other opportunities, right? Mm. They don't get the chance to meet this. They, they, like you here, or we here in general, like actually it's great to be part of these sports teams because then you're part of the brotherhood and we hook you up with a job after graduation. Yeah. You know what? The students at Duke aren't coming for the job being hooked up at like, you know, a car rental place or wherever else, right? They're coming because they want to end up on Wall Street in Silicon Valley. And that's not the kind of hookup the athletes end up getting coming yeah. out of it, right? They get a different kind of experience. And so again, Duke is teaching me, right? That these are the way, these are the things that most people don't see within the college sports system, but it's just a way in which that compensation they're supposedly getting, the education is actually denied to them. And it has to be denied to them because if they're going to be full-time athletic workers, they can't be this other thing too. Yep. It's so interesting that you say that. And I, I went to a smaller school and I went to a private university as well. So a lot of people that went to, you know, my, my alma mater, go there for a lot of the same reasons. It's a private school, it's a good school, it's known as, you know, it's got a good reputation from the education landscape, um, Pacific University. And it's interesting because um, I think about somebody like Malika Andrews, who now works for ESPN, doing great things in her career. And she was at the University of Portland at the time that I was at um, Pacific University. And for the most part, my time at Pacific University Sports were everything. And that's not Duke. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep, like, yep, that's yep. not Duke University at all. But like, for me, I'm like, well, I'm here. You know, I got the opportunity to play basketball. You know, at that level, I was an all-conference player. I'm considering ways that I could potentially go and play overseas. And obviously, to play professionally in basketball at any level, you have to put in insane amounts of work. And the reason why I brought Malika Andrews up is because she's a peer that I always admired. And in some ways I wish that I knew sort of the route that she took in terms of her not being an athlete and her being able to dial in and focus on journalism school and being the editor of the school newspaper, but also being able to, as you mentioned, take all of these summer internships year after year after year, when I look at the route that she took and being able to, to have the foresight to know these internships are going to ultimately lead me to where she is right now on ESPN and her future is so much brighter than just that. Who knows what's to come as she's an absolute powerhouse in her field. And I always kind of looked at it as I wish that as a college athlete, 
And I spoke to some young men about this recently in a conversation, like I'm grateful for everything I've been able to do, be able to part of, so on and so forth. But I wish as a college athlete that I didn't wait until my senior year to take my first internship and then try to turn that into, you know, ultimately what it's become. And again, I'm grateful for what it is, but I always sort of think about the what if dynamic. What if I was dialed in on being a journalist from my freshman year of school and I was able to do an internship every summer for a different publication, all the connections that I would have been able to make, how many more opportunities I would have been able to make, how much more I would have been able to learn then and not have to learn it on the fly as I sort of just jump head first into the profession of, of being a journalist. So I totally agree with you 100%. And I think we don't consider that enough in regards to athletes who have a very, very, very small chance to be able to play professionally anyway, and how we allow the sport to navigate our collegiate or our educational journey rather than prioritizing that of the educational journey and being a real student athlete and putting the student part first in terms of our investment in our process rather than you know, spending more time trying to be an athlete and being the best athlete and dealing with the pressures of what it takes to be an athlete at the collegiate level. Absolutely. And, you know, you said something like, I, I appreciate this because it shows, you know, it shows your humility when you said, you know, I'm grateful. You wanted to make a point. I'm grateful. But the thing is, you earned everything. Like, yeah. you actually don't have something to be grateful for. The university should be grateful that you gave them your labor for free. That's yeah. how I look at it, right? Like, I mean, you right. literally, you are working college at like, but this is, this is actually, the reason I'm underlining it is that there's something very insidious about it because this is the culture that happens in these institutions. It's like the coaches are trying to almost brainwash players into thinking that they should feel grateful, right? That they're yeah. being given something, that they're getting to join this brotherhood and that that's a real gift. And you should feel really grateful to have that gift because guess what? Like we could have picked someone else instead of you. Yeah, so you should absolutely. feel really grateful to be here, right? And that's a scam because the coach is making that salary because of the work that you are doing for them. That's Absolutely. the bottom line. Actually, they're giving way less than you're giving, right? But yeah. what they're relying on, this is something I, I like to, I think we have to really understand the system as a fundamentally racialized system, right? It's a function of a larger aspect of this white supremacist society we're talking about. We're talking about a society in which because of the history of slavery and the history post-slavery of white supremacy, the consequence of that is that disproportionately, right? Black people in the United States are put in positions where the opportunity to access college sport carries more value, right? Because it carries yeah. the possibility of um, material uplift and opportunity that is, and this is the key, being denied by the society. It was his, the lab, their labor, Black people's labor was historically extracted in this country, right? Through slavery and then other mechanisms of forced extraction of coercion, right? Yep. And as a consequence of that, that wealth passed to white people in this country who then accumulate that wealth. And those same Black people don't have that wealth to pass along and then are put in positions where they continue to be denied opportunity. And then that means college sport becomes one of those opportunities, right? Mm. That is available. And yep. that is what I like to... I think I, I call this structural coercion. And I think it's a really important thing to think about because what I mean by structural coercion is it's not just about what the coach says. It's literally the fact that people, because they, um, because they don't actually have a free choice. Like we will say the athlete is agreeing to accept a scholarship 
and give their labor, right? To, to yeah. play for the team. But that's a fair, that's a free and fair choice. That's a choice. That's consent. Right. But is it purely consensual if the alternative choice is to not have access to university at all? Is to not have access to a professional sports career at all, right? Yeah. I mean, most people confronted with that so-called choice would make the same decision because Absolutely. it's not actually a choice. It's like every factor in the society is funneling people in one direction. Mm. So then you feel, I mean, people who are in a position where they're facing structural coercion feel desperate to take that opportunity and they feel like yeah. they should be grateful, et cetera, right? But what's happening is these athletic departments are preying upon the fact that people are looking for those opportunities, right? They're yeah. using them to then extract value and they are not giving the value that people deserve in return. I want to give you some numbers here that are Please absolutely do. disgusting. So um, in 2019, 2020, I'm going to talk power five again, although I think what you're talking about Pacific is also really relevant. So I'm not trying to dismiss Pacific, but just, I know no, not at more, all. No. my work is more on power five. Okay. Absolutely. So, 2019, 2020 at the predominantly white institutions that make up the power five, right? There's no HBCU in the power five. So every single one is a predominantly white institution. 5.7% mm -hmm. of the student body at those institutions as a whole is black. Okay. Which by the way, is about half the percentage of black people in the United States. So the predominantly white schools are not admitting black people at a proportional rate to black people in the population of the United States. That's the first thing we, we have to acknowledge. Got okay. It. But let's talk about men's basketball. 55.9% of men's basketball players are black. Okay. Mm. Across the power five, 5.7% of students are black. 55.9% of men's basketball players are black. 55.7% right. of football players are black. 48.1% of women's basketball players are black. Okay. So you're gotcha. seeing these players who are producing the most value for the institution are disproportionately being admitted. But are these institutions actually friendly and open and accessible to black people as a rule? No, they absolutely aren't. Unless they, they see that there's a benefit that's accruing to the institution as a consequence of that. Look at an example like Texas A&M. Texas A&M is the second highest revenue producing university, okay, in the, in the, in the country. 3.1% of the student population at Texas A&M is black. 75% of the football players are black. 92.9% .9 of the women's basketball players are black, right? Mm -hmm. So you just see those dynamics are especially clear there. But now yeah. let's look at the people getting paid, okay, across mm -hmm. the power five. Talk about it. Yeah. So, um, 60% of the non-white, sorry, sorry, of the non-Hispanic slash non-Latinx white population in the United States. Okay. So that's 60% of the U.S. population is white and that does right. not include Latinx or, or Hispanic people. 84.4% of power five chancellors and presidents are white. 75% of power five athletic directors are white. 80.6% of Power 5 head men's basketball coaches are white. 81.54% of Power 5 head women's basketball coaches are white. And 80% of Power 5 head football coaches are white. These are the people I just listed who are making the most money off of college sport, right? And you can yeah. see people doing the work. I mean, it's, it becomes really yeah. simplistic. I don't want to oversimplify yeah. it, but it's not. No, 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 no. Oversimplify it for us. Please do. Please do. <laughs> the people doing the work are black and the people being paid for the work are white. I mean, it yep. really boils down to that. And the Absolutely. other thing I like to talk about, we are operating, what we're looking at is what I call, it's a, it's a sports media complex, okay? Um, mm. Which is to say, we cannot extricate what's happening on the universities from the media angle because ESPN, CBS, et cetera, right? The revenue they're producing, 
guess who's also generating that revenue? It's the same damn players because they don't have anything to put on, right? If they don't have those players doing the work, those players are actually earning them the money that they are making. And I mean, this is really striking. This comes from the Institute for Diversity and Ethics in Sport. 85% of sports editors are white. 82.1% of sports reporters are white. These are the people who are writing the narratives, they're creating the narratives about college sport. And they are also people, we got to be honest about it. They are also the people materially benefiting from yeah. the work that those athletes are doing. And then you get the Doug Gottlieb's of the world and the Dan Dockages and the like spouting off about like the value of amateurism and how like we'll ruin college <laughs> sport. If we get, I mean, why are they doing that? They are the ones who are benefiting. Absolutely. Right? So, got to be clear on that always. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to kind of transition out of college sport and name, image, and likeness here. And I want to talk about your podcast, which is called End of Sport, which could seem a bit radical to some people, especially if you're a huge sport fan like myself. I obviously understand what the concept is, but I want to more so know when you all came to the round table, it's you, it's Derek, and it's Johanna, correct? Is is how to pronounce it. Yep. You, Derek and Johanna, you post the End of Sports podcast, which is held in high regard in this intersectional space of sports and politics. So shout out to you three for what it is that you've been able to cultivate and produce. It's a really good podcast. Would recommend all listeners to go subscribe to it, check it out, rate it, all the things. When you sit at the round table with Derek and Johanna and you decide to name a podcast, the End of Sport podcast, that could be a little bit of frightening to some sports fans. What was that conversation like and how did you all come up with the name that's very clever, by the way, but also, you know, like I said, could frighten some folks, could definitely seem a little little radical in regards to a lot of us can't imagine a world without sport. And now here you all come with this podcast called End of Sport. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, there are a few things going on. Um, The first is you got to remember, it was during April-ish of 2020. So we were talking okay. like the pandemic hit us and sport in that moment, right? This is post post Rudy Gobert. This is like sport yeah. um, was over in a certain sense, it felt like. Now, of course, you know, we didn't actually think that sport was over forever. I mean, no one thought that, but we certainly were in a moment of tremendous uncertainty, right? Like what was right. the next step going to look like? So part of it is we wanted to capture that feeling of being at sort of the end of sport. But uh, the, the, the more nuanced plays were, I mean, what we're trying to do with the podcast is a few things. But the main thing is, we are trying to interrogate the ways in which sport generates um, harm, essentially, right? So in that sense, we're thinking like one of the ends of sport is the kind of harm it produces via, you know, uh, white supremacy, capitalism, and all the other sort of intersecting forms of harm that occur within the context of sport. And so in a way, what we're trying to play with is, A, we're going to be looking at what sport is doing, and B, Um, we are going to ask serious questions about the legitimacy of sport as a project, as a project, right? I.e. like, do, do we want to be canceling aspects of sport, right? Is that, is that a conversation we need to be having now? I completely hear you loud and clear. That's inflammatory. That's in your face. (laughs) Uh, I have never been accused of being anything but polemical. So uh, (laughs) I I don't shy away from that. I mean, I think the book that the the book that Derek and I are writing is called the end of college football. And I think it will probably make uh, some of the most disliked people (laughs) 
<laughs> Y'all are country. branding the end of it all, huh? <laughs> that's it. Um, so you know, we but I think that's that's part of it is we we want to like we want to be in your face about what we're yeah. doing because our thing is, and and I think I should acknowledge this because it gets lost along the way. But like we we all come to sport as people who love sport. I mean, we yeah. actually do. Johanna was a college swimmer herself. Yeah. Um, right. Derek and I were not such elite athletes, but we were certainly lifelong lovers of sport you know right we are huge toronto raptors fans for instance right you mm -hmm. know all all those sorts of things um but here's here's our approach I mean, i'm gonna be honest with you like for anyone who's sort of because i think that what you're kind of raising devon actually is the question that any serious critic of sport who also loves sport has to consider right and it's a really yeah. hard question absolutely it is what do i do do when on the one hand I love this thing so desperately like it is one of the primary forms of meaning in my life you know and I'm not, I'm not ashamed of that it's just that's a fact that's who I was raised yeah. to be that's never going to change like I want to yep. turn on a game it makes me feel better I want to play a game it makes me feel good I'm competitive like this guy who's always talking about the problems with competition how competition is dehumanizing i.e. me I mean I'm really competitive yeah yeah yeah, if, yeah, if yeah, I was yeah. Sports, <laughs> I'm really I would trash talk like I mean I want to I'm conditioned also when playing we can sports. tell we can tell you a trash talk <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I, I'm conditioned to want to destroy my opponent too, right? Because I went through the same sports system that we all of us did, right? You know, right. it's not it's not unique to other people, not to me. For sure. So that's that's all there. And on the other hand, if I'm being an honest critic of all the things I think that need to be criticized, right? I've, I've gone through my, I did a PhD in social and political thought. My focus wasn't even, I mean, I ended up studying sport, but like I wasn't coming through a kinesiology program or something like that. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about how do we apply our critique again of white supremacy, our critique of capitalism. If we're just being honest about how all that stuff applies to sport. All right. What do we have to say about it then? Right. Like if I'm not right. going to just apologize for this thing because I love it, if I'm actually going to do the straight up critique in the same way I would critique the thing I hate most in the world, what do I what do I say as a consequence of that? And so yeah. that's where we're coming at the end of sport from. Right. We're just trying to tell the truth. We're trying to like hone that critical lens that says when harm is produced, it's bad. Yeah. We have this understanding of how harm is produced. OK, let's look at the ways in which sport produces that harm let's just sit with it and let's just be honest about it right and so you know yeah. we're trying to cultivate a community of other people that feel the same way it's not like you shouldn't be able to love sport but it's like let's just always be honest because if we're always honest then it pushes us as insiders to sport yeah. even more importantly right to then push back on all those harmful structures and like the forms of abuse if you really understand at the end of the day like there's no context in which one human being should be castigating another one right and screaming at them and hitting them right just think about the most basic things this is what this is like coaching what 40 years ago that's basically what all elite coaching was yeah right? absolutely uh, absolutely and it's like how can we justify that in our society so it's like people in those spaces standing up and saying and, and it's amazing that the athletes we're seeing publicly who are doing this right now right in the olympics and beyond osaka biles like i mean the list is getting longer and longer of people just standing up and saying you know what it's not worth if, if my if my head is off when it comes yeah. to gymnastics if my head is off right now um in whatever ways you know she understands it in a way that i don't understand it but they, they use the word like the twisties this sort of thing if i understand yeah. in my own mind that if i do this activity right now i might hurt myself should i do it anyway because fans want me to do it because my coach because absolutely the coaches are part of this because my yeah. coach wants me to do it or am i just going to shut it down and say it's a fucking sport yeah i'm gonna take it easy today because my life is worth more than any of this other stuff
right? And we need to be able to say that. And it is amazing that we're now seeing role models who are doing it publicly, like the most, the absolute most sort of celebrated role models you could possibly have are doing it. And that's a tremendous victory. Um, but we just, we need to see more of it. We need to see more of people standing up and saying, right, at the end of the day, those, those football players who retire early, who just say, you know what? It's not worth getting another concussion. I've yeah. just got to stop. Absolutely. Right? It's all part of it. And at the end of the day, like if I was going to, if I was going to um, rebuild sport, if we had the end of sport, kind of part yeah. of the project of, of, our, of our podcast, et cetera, it's like, what are the components that have to be there if sport is actually going to be a humane enterprise? Right. Mm. And like, think of this, mm. look at, look at the, we can, cause there are things that we can celebrate in sport. Look at those high jumpers at the Olympics. They just yeah. shared the gold medal. That was awesome. That yeah. was such a beautiful moment. These are just two Absolutely. people. Like, we want to conquer this incredible thing, which is like, how could a human being jump that high? Yeah. yeah, you know yeah, yeah we yeah, both yeah. did it. We yeah. both deserve to be celebrated for it. We don't have to destroy each other in the process. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, well, one last question for you before I let you go. And I appreciate you so greatly for all the insight that you've given us here today. But this podcast is called the Wake Up and Win podcast. Um, is there something in particular that you do when you wake up in the morning that sort of leads to charging you going out and winning the day? Mm, that's an interesting question. You know what? Um, all right. It's maybe a bit bigger. It's a bit bigger than that, but to be the person you really want to be, and it's, it's, it's incredibly difficult, actually. It's not just saying something to yourself in the morning, but I mean, to, yeah. it's finding a way to tell the truth, to tell the truth that you see in the world and to not let all the other stuff that constrains us get in the way of that, right? To find a way of getting to a place where you're honest about what you need to do. You're not saying what you're saying because you have all of these other interests that are sort of weighing on you and you feel responsibility right. to hear there and the next thing. It's getting to right. a place where you're not afraid to be yourself and to tell the truth. That's what frees you up. And like for me, you know, it hasn't always been easy to, mm -hmm. to do that and to feel that way. And I felt plenty of anxiety in my lifetime about all sorts of different things. But I am at my kind of clearest and most confident now in a place where I just don't hold back. Yeah. I try to, I try to say it as I see it. And then, you know, you got to, the thing that has to come with that, which is hard for a lot of people. And like, I, I happen to be lucky because I think I'm a bit thicker skinned in some ways. No, I'm not mm -hmm. thick skinned when it comes to like people I care about and what they think about me, but I'm thick skinned right. when random troll on Twitter says something yeah, about yeah, me. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> about that. But you know what? That's a place you want to be able to get to as, as a person to like the people that you really, it doesn't matter to you what they think. They're just people out there to be able to compartmentalize that and block it out and say, I know who matters to me. I know whose opinions matter to me. And I want to hear that feedback. It's important to take that feedback. And otherwise I'm going to say it like it is. I'm going to tell the truth. And I really do not care what all those other people, I don't care what the entire state of Indiana thinks of me, Devon. That's part of it. <laughs> I love it. That's part of it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, well, Nathan, tell, tell everybody where they can follow you, the podcast, all the things. Sure. Um, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Um, please follow Appreciate it. our podcast is at end of sport pod on Twitter. So you get all kinds of updates there. My own personal Twitter is at N Kalam, which is N K A L A M B. Um, and if you're interested in sort of 
the way in which I've thought through, because I think that this is sort of the overarch, my overarching perspective on the ways in which sport does produce harm, that the book I wrote is called Game Misconduct, Injury, Fandom, and the Business of Sport. And I talk to professional hockey players and I former professional hockey players, and I talk to fans of hockey yeah. about what they each get out of it and what the costs are of the enterprise. And I think it's actually a lot of sort of surprising stuff in there for people who are just kind of casual sports fans, but haven't necessarily thought through those bigger questions of exploitation and harm in sport absolutely well on that note everybody we are going to leave y'all the only way that we know how and that is to stay woke and go win (laughs) 